السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين الحمد لله Welcome to uh, class two of our Adho Hijja series which we will be covering the story of the slander of Aisha رضي الله تعالى عنها so in the last class, we covered um, the backstory um, of this particular incident, which was the battle of Muraysiyah or the battle of Bani Mustalik. And this is the battle that took place in the sixth year after Hijrah. And during, it was during this battle that the Prophet um, and the believers set out with 700 soldiers heading towards the area of Muraysiya or the area of Bani Mustalik was an area between um, Medina and Mecca. And during this battle, uh, the Muslims were able to conquer the tribe of Bani Mustalik and uh, capturing over a hundred of their tribesmen and from amongst those who were captured was um, a woman by the name of Birra bintu Hadith, Ibn Abi Dirar. And she was um, later known as Juwadiya, the uh, wife of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Juwadiya, as we explained, she fell into the hands of Thabit Ibn Qais, who we know from another hadith, who was uh, someone who his own wife sought to um, be removed from the marriage with him, uh, citing that you know she could not stand to look at him. And this incident with Thabit ibn Qais and his wife marks the first khula that was ever sought in Islam. And so um, Juwadiya, she goes to the Prophet وسلم, and she asks him to purchase her freedom, to give her, an, uh, you know, to, to purchase her freedom which we know is called Mukatabah. And so the Prophet وسلم, as it was narrated by Aisha, the Prophet وسلم, said, I can do you one better. And how about I marry you? And then I'll make your dowry the freedom of your entire tribe, which uh, Juwadiya agreed to. She agreed to marry the Prophet وسلم. Uh, She converted to Islam and so did many of her tribesmen the entire group of people that were captured who eventually were freed because of Juwadiya marrying the Prophet وسلم, they eventually converted to Islam. All right, so this shows you, uh, as we talked about before, you know, a woman being able to know her worth and being able to, you know, navigate her way through and negotiate, you know, her terms of marriage. She said, yeah, I will marry you, but under the condition that you make my dowry you know, the freedom of my entire tribe, which the Prophet ﷺ agreed to. He agreed to it. And it shows you the power of a woman when she understands her worth is to be able to navigate her way through situations, to be able to negotiate. As I said before, it's not about what you're worth. It's not about what you think you're worth, all right? It is about what you are able to negotiate. You can sit back all day long and say, I'm worth this, I'm worth that, I'm worth this, I'm worth that. You can say what you're worth all day long from your place of privilege. But when you sit down at the table with someone who, you know, is trying to be your spouse, 
at that moment, it's about what you can negotiate. You can have all the degrees in the world. You graduated from this university. You have this degree. You have this, you know, uh, achievement or this, you know, accolade or that accolade. But when you sit down to the table to negotiate, people don't really care about what you believe you're worth. And I think in, in this day and time, especially with a lot of women and, and as well as with a lot of men, this is where they go wrong. They believe, they see themselves to be here. But when you're sitting down at the table with someone, you're not able to negotiate. You see yourself as a boss, but you can't negotiate like a boss. You see yourself as being you know, at the top of the food chain, but you can't negotiate your way you know, through situations. So it's not about what you believe you're worth. It's about what you can negotiate. Because anybody that you sit at the table with is not going to be able to give you what you believe that you're worth. I, I, I want you guys to understand that. As a woman, you might deserve, you know, the world and everything in it. <laughs> but it just so happens that when you sit down at the table with a man, that he's not able, you can't negotiate that. He's not able to give you that. Someone who doesn't have something can't give you what they don't have. So as a woman, it doesn't matter what you believe you're worth. It's about what you can negotiate, what you are able to negotiate when you sit down at the table. And Juadia was able to negotiate. She found out who was the head person in charge. Where's the man in charge? Oh, the Prophet Wasallam, he's the head man in charge. Let me go holler at him. Let me go see him so I can wiggle my way out of this situation. And that's exactly what she did. And the lesson that we learned from that, num the lesson number one here, um, uh, hey, Aunt Linda, give Brother Baptiste, tell Baptiste, I said, what's good, man? Good to hear from you. So the lesson that we learned here is that um, learning to align your personal preferences with the agenda of Islam, that Islam has an agenda and the agenda here was, of course, to see people convert to the religion. And the Prophet ﷺ, he never lost sight of that. He never lost sight of the overall agenda. The agenda is to give da'wah. The agenda is to bring people to Islam. The agenda is to make people love God. It's, the agenda is to make God number one in the hearts of the people who have forgotten about God. That is the agenda. All right? And never lose sight of that. So no matter what your personal preferences are in life, always, you know, align your personal preferences with, you know, pushing Islam forward, pushing our religion forward, pushing God forward, making God the forefront of, of everything that we do. And the Prophet ﷺ, even in that moment, never lost sight of that. He offered to marry her because he knew that the long goal, the long-term goal was to get her people to convert to Islam. And that's what he set out to achieve, and he achieved it. And as I said before, the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't have to marry her, um, adding to the responsibility that he already had, but he did so because there was an overall goal that he was trying to achieve, sacrifice, learning to sacrifice for the religion. So after he marries Juwadiya, he frees her tribe, many of them convert to Islam. So now he sets off with his his group, his army, you know, heading back towards Medina, all right? Heading back towards Medina. And it was during this trip on their, on their way back to Medina, it was during this time that the envy and the enmity of the hypocrites exposed itself. 
Upon their return, they stopped to rest. And a man from the Muhajirin kicked a man from the Ansar. And so each of them started to call their constituents, call on their constituents from their particular tribes. So when you think about the Muhajirin and the Ansar, they were two different tribes of the Arabs. The Muhajirin, the migrants, those who migrated from Mecca to Medina. Medina was not their home. Their home was Mecca. However, they migrated with the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. But although being in Medina, this is still not home for them. And they still have their tribal traditions and customs and things like that. Now, migrating to Medina, there were also tribes, two different, two main tribes in Medina. And that was Al-Aus wa Khazraj, which made up what we know today as the Ansar. So the Ansar were broken down into two different tribes. All right. And although brothers in Islam, for the sake of Islam, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we cannot overlook the cultural traditions and customs that they that still define much of their society. Keep in mind, Islam as a community was still fairly new. Islam as a doctrine, as an ideology, as a belief, up to this point is, you know, roughly 19 years old. 13 years in Medina and then six, uh, 13 years in Mecca and then six years in Medina. That's, that's a total of 19 years. All right. So Islam as an ideology, as a belief, as a creed is, you know, it has it has some time in 19 years. But Islam as a community, as a social infrastructure, the development was still going on at that time. So we're only talking about six years into developing you know, Medina into, you know, the epicenter of Islam at that time. So it wasn't enough time to rid them all of their cultural norms and traditions. So you have to leave room that jahiliyyah, pre-Islamic behaviors of ignorance are going to arise. They're going to pop up. The Sahaba were human beings. They were human beings. And that does not take away from their status in our religion. But as I said before, it allows us to humanize them. We can't possibly think that, you know, perfect in terms of, you know, the perfect specimen of a human being. They had their flaws. They had their mistakes, just like anyone. And the moment that we cannot see that, we will never be able to relate to some of the issues. I mean, you had companions that committed suicide. You had Sahaba that committed suicide. All right. Don't tell me that they were not human beings. Don't elevate them to the level of being, you know, you know, beyond human. And sometimes in our, you know, over-exaggeration and sometimes in our over-glorification of the Sahaba, sometimes we place them, we give them a status that is, you know, that is beyond what God gave them. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala she said, We have been commanded to put everyone in their proper place to give everyone the place that is appropriate for them. You had Sahaba who committed suicide. You had companions who stole, and the Prophet Sallallahu said that, you know, he's being punished in his grave right now for stealing. I mean, like, you know, my, my goal here is not to, you know, discredit the Sahaba, that is not the methodology of Ahl-Sunnah, ever. But I also want to humanize them as well, moving forward, as a ummah, so that we can be able to see the flaws, the mistakes, and be able to humanize them and be able to identify because we make some of the same mistakes. And I think it is unrealistic 
You understand? It's unrealistic for us to, you know, put ourselves on this pedestal that because I believe I'm following the Sahaba or the methodology of the Sahaba that I am somehow impervious to sin and disobedience. No. All right. So uh, it was during this trip that, you know, the hypocrites, right? The hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari, the, the hadith of the companion who killed himself. You can search for the hadith. The hadith is not, this is not like some sacred knowledge that only I have. This is a well-known hadith that anyone who has just the smallest little, you know, you know, sense of, you know, connection to a hadith knows the hadith that I'm referring to. You can Google the hadith. It's not like, you know. All right. So it was during this trip that enmity and envy of the hypocrites, it exposed itself. As I said before, when the Prophet ﷺ set out with 700 of the companions, a large group of those 700 were from amongst the munafiqun, or the hypocrites, who the Prophet ﷺ knew exactly who they were. He knew who they were, but he did not expose who they were. All right. He did not expose who they were in the community. Why didn't the Prophet ﷺ expose who the hypocrites were? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exposed to the Prophet ﷺ exactly who the hypocrites were in his community. My question is, why didn't the Prophet expose who the hypocrites were to his community? There were only certain individuals who knew the Prophet told specifically, like Hudayfa and others, who specific individuals who the Prophet ﷺ told who the hypocrites were. Why didn't the Prophet Sallallahu do that? Question. Why did the Prophet Sallallahu not expose who the hypocrites were to the community? Along with the fact that they were, you know, problematic for the community. Why didn't he expose who they were? Does anyone know? To give them a chance to change. Maybe the community wasn't ready? No, not necessarily. It's, it's what um, Sister Makita mentioned, and that was to give them an opportunity to change, right? He wanted to give them an opportunity to make Toba and convert to Islam completely, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ that we have not sent you except as a mercy to all mankind. It's the sunnah to cover our brother's faults. The hypocrites were disbelievers. They were not the brothers of the Muslims. They were disbelievers. You guys must have missed the first lesson. They were disbelievers. They were not Muslims. So when we say it is from the sunnah to cover the faults of our brothers, these individuals were not the brothers of Muslims. These were complete non-Muslims who professed Islam only for the worldly benefits and gains that they could get from the Muslims, but they really did not believe in Islam, all right? So, one of the uh, muhajirin, uh, they, he kicked the man from the Ansar. And so the man from the Ansar began to call on his constituents from the, from the Ansar. So he said, oh, Ansar, help me. And so when the muhajir saw that, he started calling on the muhajirin, oh muhajirin, help me. So now each of them was calling on their individual groups. 
And the Prophet Sallallahu he heard the confusion, he heard the noise going on. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, Are you, you promoting this, this pre-Islamic call to you know, nationalism? You calling on your tribe, you calling on your tribe to aid you and support you and help you against fighting another Muslim. This has nothing to do with Islam. He said, are you making this pre-Islamic call to nationalism, to tribalism right here while I'm standing right here, while I am in your midst? He said, He said, leave off, leave this off. Don't do this. This is muntina, which the word muntina means it stinks. It has a stench from the pre-Islamic behaviors that has no place in Islam. It has no place in Islam. You calling on the Muhajireen, you calling on the Ansar, and you guys are getting ready to fight each other. It's now going to come, now it's going to become, you know, uh, a tribal war. And I'm standing right here? Really? He said, Da'uha fa'innaha muntina. He said, leave this. It has the stench, it stinks. It has the stench of pre-Islamic partisanship and nationalism or tribalism. And so that brings us to lesson number two, and that is calling out bigotry and racism, nationalism, tribalism, whatever ism you want to add to it, calling it out no matter where you see it. And in the Islamic community today, when someone calls it out as it is, it's taken as an offense. People getting offensive. People start calling you nationalistic. And it's just like, no, I'm not nationalistic. Why is it this guy can hold up a Palestinian flag and, you know, and, and claim Palestine as his, as his nationality? This one can say he's Yemeni. This one can say he's Maghribi. This one can say he's Masri. But the moment you say that I am African-American, it's like, no, we're all Muslims. You know, don't, don't associate yourself with anything. Just call yourself a Muslim. And some of us as African-Americans, we have bought into that. Why is it that everybody else can have their own identity and where they come from, all except African-American Muslims? We are not allowed to identify with anything other than Islam. For us, you're just Muslim. For you, you're Palestinian. For you, you're Egyptian. For you, you're Moroccan. For you, you're Nigerian. For you, you're this. But when it comes to African-Americans, it's like, no, we're just Muslim. La wallahi identifying with your you know your culture is one thing taking pride in the fact that this is who i am and this is where i've come from this is where i come from is one thing calling people to that making that a part of you know your mission you know that's a whole nother conversation so when the next time you think about calling someone a nationalist understand what that means understand what that means. I'm, I'm not a nationalist because I take pride in where I come from. And I call on African-American Muslims to, you know, to take pride in where they come from and to represent where they come from. That doesn't conflict with Islam. The only time that conflicts with Islam is when we start to separate based upon that. I'm not separating anybody based upon that because I call out the blatant racism in the Muslim community. La wallahi. La wallahi. We're calling it out as it is. 
You had Muslim groups, you know, Muslim organizations, you know, going out to North New Jersey. You had ICNA going out to, Muslim, you know, to North New Jersey and you're standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And meanwhile, you don't even stand in solidarity with the African-American Muslims within your own community. I, I, I'm just puzzled. How do you skip over the blatant racism, the blatant exclusion of African-Americans within our own ranks amongst the Muslims and then jump out there on some political, you know, on some political, you know, on a political platform just to get yourself some recognition or to, you know, remove some, you know, doubts about whether or not, you know, you stand here or you stand there. You know, it's, it's like a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face to me because I'm looking at you like you're the same Islamic organization that has absolutely nothing to do with African-American Muslims. But then you are standing in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Like this is a political move. This is a political move. You don't give a damn about Black Lives Matter. You just don't want to end up on the wrong side of history when, you know, we start to look around and see, you know, who's actually for us and who's against us. You just don't want to end up on the wrong side. But the fact of the matter is that you don't give a damn about Black Lives Matter. It's a slap in the face. All you got to do is look at the exclusion of African-American Muslims on platforms, you know, in, in conferences and in, in, in lectures on the lecture circuit, on the conference circuit. Look at how we are excluded. Look at how we are excluded. We are either not invited to events because either number one, we are not qualified, or number two, um, you just don't see us. <laughs> we're either not qualified or we just, we're irrelevant. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how do you have a three-day conference? You have 23 scholars, 23 shuyuch on a whole roster, and only one or two is African-American, and one is there for, you know, fundraising, and the other one is there for, you know, entertainment, a poet. And I would call on all Islamic, you know, Muslim poets or art artists, you know, whatever term you like to give yourself. Don't say when you're amongst African-Americans that you're pro-Black Lives Matter and you know, you're standing up against racism, but then when ICNA or ISNA, any of these Islamic organizations give you a call because they offer you some money that you jump at the opportunity, like what principles do you stand on? I don't understand. <laughs> what principles do you stand on? Because they offer you some money, they're gonna cut you a check, then you'll throw all of your principles out of the window, but yet you'll stand on Instagram and you'll stand on Twitter and you'll talk about how Black Lives Matter and how you for your people and you're Black and you're this and you're that. But the moment you get a phone call from Ikna or Isna to speak on one of their platforms, you rush to go do it. All of that Black Lives Matter stuff go out the window. You've got to be kidding me. It's a slap in the face. You have no principles. I have no respect for people who do that, period. I have no respect for people who do that. Nothing you say can be taken serious. Nothing you say. Once I saw the a couple of individuals do that, 
Wallahi, as the Arabs say, Sakata min aini, you fell from my eyes. I don't even see you anymore. And if anybody follows me on my page and you share any of this stuff on my page, I block you too. I don't want to see any of that because it's a smack in the face. I'm a person of principle. My entire life, I'm, I'm principally oriented. Principally oriented. You can't jump on Instagram because majority of your followers are African-Americans and you jump on there and you hollering Black Lives Matter and you pro-Black and you stand with the, your African-American community. And then the moment Ikna Isna give you a phone call, the moment this platform or that platform give you a phone call, you're there on the spot. Like, I mean, like, is it, is it money you insert to? You, you need help financially? Is that what it is? You willing to sacrifice your principles for, for money? I don't know. Am I the only one that sees this? Like, am I, am I crazy? Again, is this Shadid Muhammad just talking off his rocker? Or, or am I seeing it for what it really is? I mean, I'm sorry. I just, I just think it's a big joke. It's all a joke. It's, it's a joke. So we'll jump out there and we'll say Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Black Lives Matter. And then the moment you get called on by an Islamic organization that is not pro-Black Lives Matter, that is actually totally part of the problem, then you'll jump on the platform to speak. I mean, is speaking that important? Is entertaining people that important? Is, 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 I'm asking like, is, is speaking publicly that important? Is speaking on these platforms that important? Is your brand that important? As I mentioned in Jumar, freak your brand. Like that's, your brand has become, you know, your deity. And you'll shuck and jive, you'll coon, you know what I mean? You'll do whatever it takes to make sure your brand is out there. That has become your new deity. This is, your brand is your deity. That's all you care about. You have Islamic speakers, even amongst African-Americans, will not stand on a platform with this brother or that brother because he's going to mess up your brand. And it's because of that, there's no unity. It's because of stuff like that, we have no unity. But the Prophet Wasallam, he called out the bigotry no matter where it was, no matter who did it. He didn't cut any corners when it came to that. And until we are able to get to that point where we are unapologetically Muslim and we'll call out bigotry, racism, prejudice, we'll call it out no matter who, is it, who it is uh, against, no matter who it's against. I don't care if I spoke, at your, spoke on one of your platforms last week. If you are involved in something that is excluding African-Americans, African-American Muslims from the narrative, I'm going to call it out until we address it. The purpose of calling it out is not in to embarrass anybody. It's to let everybody know, hey, we see it. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a conversation. I, I mean, to, I've been saying this for years. We still have not had a conversation. <laughs> we still have not had a conversation. Ikna, we still waiting for a conversation. How is it you can have a three-day conference, 23, 25 speakers on your roster, and only two of them is African-American? One of them is there for fundraising. The other one is there for entertainment. I'm, I'm confused. Where's the inclusion? 
And then you'll jump on the bandwagon and say, you know, we stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Where's the solidarity? Because you came out on a Saturday and you stood with everybody else. Meanwhile, you were in fear. Meanwhile, you get back in your car and you drive to the suburbs never to be seen again. Glad that's over. <laughs> I don't have to do that again. <laughs> who rolled the dice and decided who was going to come down and represent? Man, please. The Prophet ﷺ, he called it out. So number two, lesson number two is to call out bigotry, call out racism, prejudice, to call it out. The Prophet ﷺ said, are you going to make this pre-Islamic call to nationalism and tribalism? You know what I mean? While I'm here, while I'm right here, you're going to do this? He said, He said, leave this. This is, it stinks. It has a stench. And so the Ansar, um, obviously they were, they outnumbered the Muhajirin, right? The Ansar, they outnumbered the Muhajirin. And one of the chiefs of the hypocrites, pay attention to this individual. Pay attention to this individual. His name was Abdullah ibn Abi Ubay ibn Salul. He was the chief of the hypocrites during that time. Abdullah ibn Abi Ubay ibn Salul. He said, once he saw what was going on, because the hypocrite always waits for their opportunity. The hypocrite always waits for an opportunity to create more fitna. The Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba, don't do this. This is pre-Islamic behavior, has nothing to do with Islam, don't do that. Abdullah ibn Abi Ubay ibn As-Salul, he saw the opportunity. He said, as Allah mentions in the verse, Allah mentions what he actually said in the conversation. Allah mentioned it in the ayah. Surah number 63, ayah 8. That whole surah, Surah Al-Munafiqun, was revealed about the hypocrites during this incident. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even in the surah, Allah does not call their names out. Even in the surah, Al-Munafiqun, the the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not call the hypocrites out. And of course, there's wisdom in that. But Allah, what he did was he gave the characteristics of the hypocrites because they exist in every day and every time. So to call them out individually, uh, it would leave people to believe that the hypocrites only existed during that time. You understand? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had mentioned the names of the hypocrites, it would have led people to believe that these were the only hypocrites during that time. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not even mention the names of the hypocrites, but what he did was he mentioned their qualities, their characteristics. So we can look for those characteristics in every day and every time, every age, every time. You will find, you will know the hypocrites by their characteristics. So Abdullah ibn, ibn Abi Ubay ibn Salul, he said, he said, did they do this? Meaning they got into this skirmish, they got into this fight. He said, He said, did they really do this? They got into a fight? 
He said, Wallahi, when we get back to Medina, the honorable, meaning the people of Medina, will remove those who are dishonorable or ignoble. We will remove them, meaning the Muhajideen. So he's now trying to get the Ansar to believe that when they get back to Medina, they're not going to let the Prophet and the Muhajideen back into Medina. So he saw an opportunity. He thought that, you know, okay, I got, I finally got them on my team now. The, the Ansar and the Muhajideen are having a, a skirmish with each other. This is my opportunity to get the Ansar to be on my team. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed it to the Prophet Allah revealed it. Because at the end of that ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, But all honor, they said the honorable ones, meaning the chief of the hypocrites and the Ansar, will remove the dishonorable ones, meaning the Muhajideen, from Medina. When we get back to Medina, we're not letting them in Medina. Oh, they want to fight with you? They want to fight with the Ansar? Wallahi, when we get back to Medina, we're not going to let them in Medina. This is basically what he's saying. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet wasallam that to Allah and his messenger and the believer belong all honor. And even Abdullah ibn Abi Ubay ibn As-Salul, even his son, who became a real believer, turned on his own father. And when they got back to Medina, his son wouldn't allow him into Medina until he apologized to the Prophet And Umar, as you know Umar, Umar, when he got wind that Abdullah was doing this and Allah had revealed to the Prophet what Abdullah said, Umar says to the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, he said, oh, Messenger of Allah, give me permission to strike the neck of this hypocrite. Let me off him. Let me kill him. Let me rid us of him, man. Because this wasn't the first time that Abdullah had caused fitna between the Sahaba. He said, give me permission, O oh Messenger of Allah, to strike the neck of this hypocrite. And listen to what the Prophet ﷺ said. He said, لا يا عمر لا الناس أن محمدًا يقتل أصحابه. He said, no, Umar. He said, no, don't kill him. He said, because I don't want people to say that Muhammad kills his companions. Don't kill him. Let him live. He said, I don't want people to say that Muhammad kills his companions. Now, when you think about the Prophet statement, Abdullah ibn, ibn Abi Ubay ibn Salul was not one of his companions. And the Prophet knew it. He knew he was a hypocrite. He knew that the only reason he was there on that journey was to cause fitna. Don't you know that the hypocrites, when the Sahaba used to go out to go fight, they're making preparations to go fight. Don't you know that the hypocrites used to go and cast doubts into the hearts of the Sahaba? Like, you guys really going to go out there and fight? You guys going to, you, you might gonna lose your life. You going to go out there and support Muhammad? Why don't you let Muhammad go out there and fight? Why are you going out there to support him? What about your parents? What about your wife? What about your children? <laughs> You understand? This is what they used to do to deter the Sahaba from going out to fight with the Prophet trying to cast doubts into the heart of the Sahaba. So this wasn't the first time that Abdullah was, you know, was the cause of some type of fitna. 
Umar anhu, he says, munafiq. He said, Oh Messenger of Allah, leave me to, off this hypocrite. Let me strike the neck of this hypocrite. And the Prophet وسلم, he said, La ya Umar. He said, No, Umar. He said, La Muhammadan yaqtulu ashabu. He said, No, Umar. He said, I don't want people to say that Muhammad kills his companions. Meanwhile, Abdullah was not his companion. So what do we learn from this? This is lesson number three. Lesson number three. And that is always be mindful of the way that you represent Islam. As a Muslim, you represent Islam no matter where you go. No matter how insignificant you believe you are as a Muslim, you say, I'm not an imam, I'm not a student of knowledge, I'm not married to a student of knowledge, I'm nobody. No, if you are a Muslim, you are somebody. You are a representative of God. You are a representative of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And people will look at you to decide whether or not Islam is the truth or not the truth. People will look at you and your behaviors to decide whether or not they want to be a part of this religion or not. The last thing that you want to happen is for you to come on the day of judgment and someone to say, I did not become a Muslim because of you. I did not accept Islam because of you. One day I was watching you and I saw, you know, I, I remember distinctly, I used to work at a barbershop, right? In Newark, right? In Newark, New Jersey. I used to work at a barbershop, right? On Central Ave. And I remember one time, uh, I was, and there used to be a beauty supply store right across the street from the barbershop. So, you know, we used to have to go back and forth to the beauty supply store to grab things that we needed from the barbershop, right? And so one day I go across the street to the beauty supply store to, to go grab something. And there was a, a woman walking, you know, we actually crossed paths. She's going to the barbershop. I'm going to the beauty supply store. And, you know, she had on tight clothes or whatever the case may be. And so, you know, I kept walking. I was on my hardcore blinders on. Like, I didn't see anything at that moment. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, I was a new convert. So, you know, just, just hard up on Islam, right? And uh, super Muslim. And so I walked past this woman and uh, I go into the beauty supply store. I grab the things that, uh, let me show you how people watch you. I go into the beauty supply store to grab some of the things that I needed. I get up to the counter. The, the dude who was at the counter, a brother named Samir, um, he eventually converted to Islam, actually. He actually took his shahada. Um, and um, I get up to the counter to order my stuff. And Samir, he looks at me. He is like, yo, like, you a real Muslim, man. I was like, what you mean by that? He was like, yo, I was just watching you, man, when you was walking across the street, man. He was like, yo, the girl with the big butt, you know, she had the tight clothes on. She was walking across. He was like, you didn't even turn around and look at her butt. You didn't do nothing, man. Like, you just kept walking straight. He's like, when you were, you, when you were walking, I was saying to myself, man, I know Ma's going to turn around and look at her butt. I know Ma's going to turn around and look at that, man. Like, nobody can resist that. He was like, yo, you kept walking. You didn't even look at her. He was like, yo, I respect that type of discipline, man. Like, he was like, man, that's what I need, man. I need that type of discipline. And I'm not saying that to praise myself. What I'm saying that to say is that people watch you. I never even knew this dude was looking out the window at me. 
You never know who's watching you. Sometimes you're at work and non-Muslims, you know, might have been reading about Islam, you know, at home or whatever, and they get to work and they see this Muslim that works with them and they want to just see how you're going to act. They want to see how you're going to act. You understand? And they're watching you. You don't even know that they're looking at you. They're looking at you. You don't even know that they're watching you because they're looking at you to decide whether or not this is really the truth or is it a, is it, is it a big joke? You understand? The Prophet ﷺ, he said, no, Umar, don't, don't touch him. Don't, don't do anything to him. He said, because I fear that if you harm him, people will not convert to Islam because people will say, <laughs> people will say, Muhammad kills his companions. Nobody knew that Abdullah was a hypocrite other than the Prophet وسلم, and Umar and Hudayfa and the few people who knew. You understand? Nobody knew that he was, you know, that he was, a, he was not really a Muslim. So from the outside, if the Prophet ﷺ had given permission to Umar to harm him, from the outside, people would have said, Muhammad kills his own companions? Why would I want to be a part of a religion where, you know, where the leader of the religion kills his own followers? Why would I want to be a part of a religion where the leader of the religion kills his own, his own followers? I don't want to be a part of that. Meanwhile, they would have never known the intricacies of that situation, that he wasn't really a hypocrite. You understand? Right, to the outside world, he looked like a Muslim. To, a, to the outside world. Right, everything that is known doesn't have to be told, right? The Prophet ﷺ didn't expose it to everybody because, you know, either everybody couldn't handle it or, you know, he didn't want to flare up, you know, anything within the community. So Allah revealed it to him that he's a hypocrite. So the prophet just sits on that. He tells a couple of individuals that can handle it. But for the most part, the, the, the larger community doesn't know that this guy is really a hypocrite. This guy is really a disbeliever. You understand? So the prophet Sallallahu said, no, Umar, I don't want people to say that Muhammad kills his companion. The Prophet ﷺ was concerned about the way that Islam was viewed. He was concerned about the way that he represented the religion. He doesn't want to be a cause of chasing people away from Islam. He gives Umar permission to kill this guy, and people on the outside looking at it like, oh, shoot, Muhammad kills his own followers? I don't want to be a part of that. You understand? Got to be smart. Sometimes when Muslims beef with each other online or, you know, in public, it makes other people, non-Muslims, like, you know, I hate to keep going back, you know what I mean? But sometimes you got to go back to go forward. And you look at sometimes how Muslims attack one another and disrespect one another, you know, on social media. And then non-Muslims see this, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's sad. It really is. Because I'm, 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 I'm trying to think about how they're seeing this, you know? So it's very important, you know, so lesson number three, be mindful of the way that you, you know, represent Islam, all right? Even uh, Umar, if you think about when Umar, before Umar died, right? Umar, how did he die? He died from, this, from the wounds uh, when he was stabbed. Umar, he came out to leave Salat al-Fajr one morning, and uh, the slave of Mughira ibn Shu'aba, 
His name was Fairuz, Abu Lutlu'a. He stabbed Umar multiple times, stabbed Umar in the stomach, stabbed Umar in the shoulder, stabbed him. Like he had a double-edged dagger. And when Umar came out to leave Salatul Fajr, Allahu Akbar, and he began to recite, this guy walked up to Umar and he starts stabbing Umar while he's in the Salat. And that shows you that Muslims have been attacked in their masajid since the earliest of times. So somebody walking into a masjid and opening fire on a group of you know, worshipers in the masjid, that's not something new. That's not something new. It happened during the time of the Prophet Wasallam. It happened during the time of Umar. It happened. And he walks up to Umar while Umar is leading the Salah and he starts stabbing Umar. Eventually, Umar passes out. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, he stands up to finish leading the Salah. When Umar regained consciousness, the first thing Umar said was, go get me a bucket of water so I can finish my Salah because Umar fell unconscious. So he never finished Salatul Fajr. So when he regained consciousness, the first thing that he's worried about is, I didn't make my Salah. Go get me a bucket of water so I can make wudu so I can finish Fajr. Can you think about, can you, I want you to just pause for a second and kind of just ponder on that for a moment. Some of us wake up late for our salat, wake up late for fajr. We get up, we make breakfast, we brush our teeth, we go do this, some laundry, whatever the case. And then it's like, oh, I'll pray. Some of us wake up late for fajr and don't pray fajr until 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. We wake up late for fajr and the first thing I got to get to work. Rushing, scrambling out the house to get to work on time. But your real work, which is serving God, the whole purpose that God put you here for, the whole reason that you were created was to serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّةِ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I did not create the human being except to worship me. That's your real job. You late for your real job, but you want, you scrambling to get to work on time for, for your secondary job. You didn't even pray Fajr. You didn't even pray Fajr. Umar anhu, was stabbed multiple times. Some scholars say 12 times. Some say 11. Some say 14. Stabbed 14 times in his stomach, in his chest, in his back. He falls unconscious. He regains consciousness. And the first words that come out of his mouth is, go get me a bucket of water so I can make wudu. I didn't pray Fajr. And the second thing he did was he told his son, Abdullah ibn Umar, go find out who was responsible for stabbing me. This is my point. Go find out who stabbed me. His son, Abdullah ibn Umar, comes back and he says, the person who stabbed you was the servant, the slave of Mughira, Abu Lutlu'a, Fairuz, who was not a Muslim. And Umar says, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Umar says, All praise is due to Allah who did not make my death at the hands of a man who claims to be a Muslim. Concerned about how Islam is represented. Because if that was a Muslim who killed Umar, who stabbed Umar like that, what would people outside of Islam think 
The Muslims kill their own leaders. I don't want to be a part of a religion like that where you got Muslim leaders being stabbed. I don't want to be a part of no religion like that. So you think about Muslims who are in the habit of putting their hands on other Muslims and hurting other Muslims and doing harm, bodily harm to other Muslims. There's times in my life where, you know, not necessarily afraid, I'm, I'm not afraid to die, but, you know, just being very cautious, going to certain places because you don't know how certain Muslims are going to react to you. You don't know, you know, people have said things about you, have, you know, sp spread lies and slandered you and talked about you in such a way that they have now controlled the way that people view you. And you never know when somebody is going to have so much dislike for you, so much disdain for you that they see you walk into a restaurant, they see you somewhere, and they just want to do some bodily harm to you. You don't know how many times in my life, you know what I mean, like I had to, you know, be on guard, be cautious about how I move and where I'm at, because I don't know if, you know, one of these Muslims is going to, you know, going to try my chin. And it has happened. It has happened. This is the danger when scholars from Saudi Arabia warn against you because a scholar doesn't realize the damage and the pain that they cause to our communities. They don't realize that, excuse my French, they don't understand that we have niggas amongst us. And I know niggas. I know niggas. <laughs> I grew up with niggas all my life. I know niggas and I know how they, I know how they move. You understand? And all it takes, and that is from a, that's a line of poetry. I love, I, I, I know niggas. I love niggas. All right. But the point that I'm making is that I understand my people and we have some, some pure ignoramuses amongst us who Given the right circumstance and the right search, this is what's dangerous. This is what is dangerous about Donald Trump. Donald Trump knows, you know, white America. He knows white America. And you have had white people that have said, all Donald Trump got to do is give us the word and we'll attack. You understand? All they're waiting for is for Donald Trump to just throw something out there. It could be indirectly, could be ambiguous, but throw it out there to give them permission to, you know, you understand? And this is the same thing with the power that we have given to scholars who don't understand us, don't understand our communities, don't understand our dilemma, don't, don't understand the social fabric that kind of make up who we are as African-Americans, they don't know, they don't know niggas, you understand? And so when a scholar says, oh, stay away from him, he's astray, he's this, all it takes is for a scholar to say, oh, his blood is lawful, he's not a Muslim. Based upon some false information that was given to him by one of these individuals. And that's all he has to say, oh, his blood is lawful, and niggas, are, Muslim niggas are gonna act like niggas. And that's a fact will spill your blood in the drop of a dime. Make no mistake about that. Make no mistake about that. I don't have to mention any areas. You guys already know what I'm talking about. And I mean, history repeats itself. We've seen that. We've seen, you know, throughout history how, you know, this is what got Malcolm X killed.
Elijah Muhammad, they may say, oh, Elijah didn't have, yeah, but you, you gave the word. <laughs> you gave the word that his head should be removed from his body. You gave the word. And all it takes is for a nigga, <laughs> being who he is, to go and act on it. Very dangerous. And this is why moving forward in our communities, we cannot give an individual that much power. I don't care who they are. I don't care how great of a scholar you are. I don't care what your academic accolades are. Nobody should have that much power that he could say, sit from a place of privilege. You're all the way in Saudi Arabia. You in Saudi Arabia, and you could issue a fatwa. You could issue a ruling. Mind you, outside of Saudi Arabia, you might not even be known. <laughs> Scholars outside of Saudi Arabia might not even know who you are. I mean, I took a name, <laughs> Sheikh Obeidah Jabity. I took a name that most of the students of knowledge within Medina were familiar with. And I went to Riyadh to ask the Mufti, Sheikh Abdulaziz, about Sheikh Obeidah Jabity. He didn't even know who in the hell I was talking about. He said, who? Sheikh Obeidah Jabity, who is this? Meanwhile, these individuals in America got y'all believing that this is some big time Sheikh that everybody knows and everybody respects. Meanwhile, he, he doesn't even have a degree. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying that in, in any disparaging way. I'm just saying what the truth is. He doesn't have a degree. He's, he's not a scholar of that, of that level. He's not a scholar of that magnitude, the way that they make him seem. Even some of the scholars in Saudi Arabia don't even respect him right now. But they got y'all believing that this is this great scholar who issued this fatwa and ruled against this person and warned against that person. And, you know, and then when they say, oh, the scholars warned against him, it's like, what scholars? Give me five. Give me five. Give me five scholars. When you say, oh, the scholars have warned against Shadi Muhammad, well, give me three scholars who have said my name out of their mouth warning against me. I can give you one, Ubaid al Jabity. I can give you one. Give me three scholars. <laughs> because in the Arabic language, three or more is considered a jama'ah. <laughs> three or more is considered a jama'ah. So I'll, I'll give you that. Give me three. You can't even give me three names who have mentioned me by name and have warned against me. So when people say, oh, the scholars have warned against him, they mean one scholar. They mean one scholar. Correct me if I'm wrong, please. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. But nobody should be given that level of power because it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Anyway, be mindful of the way that you represent Islam. However, once that situation unfolded, the chief of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Ubay, he realized that that situation was kind of foiled. There was not really much he could do about that situation. So just like an envious person, when they can't hurt you, who do they hurt? If a person can't hurt you, who do they hurt? Question. 
When an envious person, person who doesn't like you, is envious of you, jealous of you, when they can't hurt you, who do they hurt? Question. They hurt the ones that you love. There you go. If I can't get to you, then I'm going to hurt somebody that, that you love. Now we segue into what they did to Aisha. So because he wasn't able to get that off on the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, cause that separation between the Muhajirin and Ansar, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam stepped in, he ended that situation, put them back on ice. So Abdullah ibn Ubay, he sits back and he looks at the situation, figures out how can I hurt this man? Because what they did to Aisha was not about Aisha. It was about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But because they couldn't get to the Prophet ﷺ, they had to go for what he loved. Which brings me to lesson number four, and that is love is the greatest vulnerability. Some of us right now are not, there's some men right now that the only thing that is stopping them from being a murderer, a killer, or a gangster is the fact that they have children. The only thing that is stopping them right now from, you know, engaging in some, you know, nefarious, you know, type of behaviors is the fact that they have children. There's some people who got out of the game because they had children. And so therefore their children became, you know, their Achilles heel. Love is the greatest vulnerability. And when an envious person can't hurt you, they go after the people that you love. And the Prophet ﷺ, he never shied away from his feelings for Aisha, whether privately in the comfort of his own home, in the privacy of his own home, or publicly in front of the entire community. This was a man who was very open with his feelings for Aisha, as well as his otherwise, but more so for Aisha than anyone else. The Prophet ﷺ was asked, Ya Rasulullah, men ahab he was asked, O Messenger of Allah, who is the most beloved person to you? Who do you love more than anybody? He was asked this in public. Who do you love more than anybody? The Prophet said, Amin al-Rijali, Amin al-Nisa. From amongst men or women? Who are you referring to? Men or women? He said, from amongst the men. And the Prophet said, Abu Bakr. I love him more than I love anybody. They said, well, what about from amongst the women? And the Prophet said, his daughter, Aisha. I love her more than anybody. You understand? Yes, Aisha was a casualty of war. Absolutely. She was a casualty. They weren't going after Aisha because of some hatred that they had for Aisha. They knew how the Prophet felt about Aisha. So they're going to go after who he loves. They're going to attack what he loves because that's a vulnerability for him. We can't hurt you, but we're going to hurt somebody that we know that you love. You understand? The Prophet was very vocal was very public about his feelings for Aisha. He said, I love her more than I love anybody. You guys on Instagram, you're gonna cut off now. I'm gonna turn you back on and show up.
So you have to understand the Prophet وسلم, being vocal and being verbal and being public about how he felt about Aisha. You understand? P yes, people will use that against you. The Prophet وسلم, is thinking that he's just letting his community know, being transparent, being open about how he feels about his youngest wife, Aisha, seeing her for who she was, uh, thinking that he's just being open and transparent about that. And other people are looking at that as an opportunity to take advantage. And that's what people do. That's what toxic people do. You know, you think that you're sharing because in the spirit of transparency, but they're listening to you, looking at you as a, looking at your love for that person as a vulnerability. That's your weak link. That's your Achilles heel. And that's what we're going for. And that's exactly what they did. The wives of the Prophet وسلم, were even aware about how he felt about Aisha. The wives of the Prophet, they at times tried to confront that, demanding, you know, that the Prophet loved them the way that he loves her. On one hadith, Aisha narrates this hadith. I want you guys to listen closely. Aisha. Aisha said, أرسل أزواج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فاطمة بنت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إلى رسول الله فاستأذنت عليه وهو مضطجع معي في مرطي عائشة she narrates I want I want you to I want to show you how even his other wives were aware about how he felt about Aisha it wasn't something that he just was vocal about in his community but even amongst his other wives they were aware of this Aisha said that the wives of the Prophet sent Fatima to the Prophet and she asked permission to enter upon our, you know, asked permission to enter upon the Prophet while he was with me laying on my, you know, laying on my robe, right? She had her robe on, you know, they're, they're cuddled up. And the Prophet at times he used to lay on Aisha's lap used to lay on her leg or whatever the case may be. So he's booed up, right? If for lack of better terms, he's booed up, laid up with Aisha, right? The other wives of the Prophet وسلم, Um Salama, Um Habiba, Zainab, they send Fatima to the Prophet وسلم, right? Why did they send Fatima? Because that was his baby girl. That, that was his baby girl, you understand? And they knew if there was anyone that could get something out of the Prophet ﷺ, it would be Fatima. These were women who knew how to work the system. These were women who the Prophet ﷺ said to them, you women are like the women of Yusuf. <laughs> You're like the women during the time of Yusuf. So these women, they knew how to work the system. That was his baby girl. That was his youngest daughter. So the wives, they sent Fatima to the Prophet ﷺ. Aisha's narrating the story. She said, Fatima asked permission to enter while the Prophet ﷺ was with me laying on my robe or my cloak. And the Prophet ﷺ gave her permission to enter. So Fatima goes, she proceeds to say, O Messenger of Allah, Azwajuka, Arasalanani, Arasalanani, Ilayka, Yasalnaka, Adal fi Fibnati, Abi Kuhafa. She said, oh, messenger of Allah, your wives. Now, the Prophet, I want you to imagine this. The Prophet is sitting there with Aisha, his wife. Fatima enters and Fatima says, oh, messenger of Allah, your wives. He's laid up with one wife. 
And Fatima says, your wives sent me to you. They sent me to you, demanding that you be fair in your treatment of them and Aisha. Like you treat Aisha different than you treat everybody else. Aisha said, well, and a Sakita. Aisha said, and I was silent. I didn't say anything. I let her talk. This is the Prophet Wasallam's daughter. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to interrupt. So I let her talk. Aisha said, well, and a Sakita. And I was silent. She said, فَقَالَ لَهَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَيْ بَنِيَّةِ The Prophet says to Fatima in a, in a very gentle way, he said, بَنِيَّةِ He said, oh my beloved daughter. Oh my beloved daughter. He said, أَلَسْتِ تُحِبِّينَ مَا أُحِبُّ He said, don't you love what I love? He said, don't you love what I love? This is a father talking to his baby girl, his, his youngest daughter. You understand? He said, Oh, my beloved Fatima. He said, I let you Don't you love what I love? She said, Of course I do, Daddy. Of course I do. So he says, He said, I love this girl. So you love her. You understand? SubhanAllah. <sighs> Wow, subhanAllah. He says to Fatima, he said, don't, don't you love what I love? Fatima says, Bella, of course I do, Daddy. He said, He said, I love this girl. I love this woman. So love her. Love her like I love her. فقامت فاطمة حين سمعت ذلك من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فرجعت إلى أزواج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم سبحان الله so Fatima she realizes what it is that he ain't budging on this joint you understand he ain't budging you understand he's not even budging so I, Fatima gets up and she goes back to the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So she goes back to the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and she informs them of what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said. And what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, what she said to him and what he said to her. So the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say to Fatima, Fatima is, you're not helping us in this situation. Go back to him and talk to him again. Fatima says, Wallahi Fatima says, Wallahi, I'm not gonna talk to him again about Aisha. I ain't gonna talk to him no more. That's it. I see that this man really loves this girl. And you're trying to get me to intervene. You're trying to get me to come in between love. I'm not coming in between that, man. I'm not, I'm not getting in between that. She said, Wallahi, She said, I Wallahi, I swear to God, I will never speak to him about Aisha again. I will never speak to him about Aisha again. So what did they do? What did they do? 
No, she's not. It's not that she's going against her father. She's not going against love. When you see that, he's not budging. This man loves this woman, and he's not. He's not gonna. He's not gonna budge on that. It's not that she didn't want to go against her father, because if that was the case, she would have never went there to begin with. She saw when he said to her, "Don't you love what I love?" And she said, "Yes." He said, "Well, I love her." I love her. So you need to love her the way that I love her. You understand? So what did they do? They sent Zainab. Oh my gosh, the wrong one. They sent Zainab. <laughs> Been to Jahash. And let me show you how this connects. Because one of the people who got caught up in the slander of Aisha was Zainab's sister. Hamna bintu Jahsh. Hamna, Zainab's sister, is actually one of the people who got caught up in the slander of Aisha. So it's all tied in. So they send Zainab. And Zainab comes to the Prophet وسلم, asks permission for Arsala Azwajin Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Zainab bint Jahsh, Zawjin Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, wa hiya allati kanat tusamini minhunna fi manzilati inda Rasulillahi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Aisha's narrating the hadith. Aisha said, so then the wives of the Prophet, so Aisha's kind of narrating this from like a place of privilege, <laughs> right? Because she's sitting back watching the whole situation unfold. And she's like, once she saw the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say that, you understand? Once she saw the Prophet ﷺ say that to, uh, to Fatima, she knew that she was in there. <laughs> that this guy really loves me. You understand? Think about a woman who watches her husband defend her in, in front of other people. There's, there's nothing that is more secure for a woman than to see her husband defend her in front of other people, defend his love for her in front of other people. It's, it's all gravy from there. She's all in. So Aisha says, then the wives of the Prophet Sallallahu sent Zainab bintu Jahsh. And she was someone who was somewhat equal to me in rank in the eyes of the Prophet Sallallahu <laughs> So Aisha and Zainab, they were kind of like rivals out of all of the co-wives. These two had the most rivalry between them. Aisha said, She said that Zainab was the only one out of all of the other wives that, was, was, that could compete with me in my status or in my position with the Prophet Zainab was the only one that can compete. Then Aisha goes on to talk about Zainab. And Zainab returns the favor to Aisha during the story of the slander of her. Watch how this plays out. Aisha says, Wallahi, lam ara imra'atin qat khayrun fi deen min Zainab. She says, Wallahi, this is Aisha narrating the story, showing you that Aisha didn't have anything in her chest for any of her co-wives. Because now she's about to praise Zainab. She said, here comes Zainab. But let me tell you something about Zainab. She said, wallahi, I swear by Allah, I don't know a woman. I don't know any woman 
I don't know any woman, I've never seen any woman that is better in her practice of, of Islam than Zainab. I don't know anyone, I don't know any woman who is more pious and God-fearing than Zainab. Nor do I know any woman who is more truthful than Zainab. Nor do I know any woman who you know, has an understanding of family and being connected with her family than Zainab. Nor do I know any woman who has more sense of self-sacrifice and a charitable disposition than Zainab. He said, she said, nor do I know anyone who is closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than Zainab Ma'ada, except for the fact, here comes the, you know, the exception. She said, I don't know anyone who is better in her practice of the religion than Zainab. I don't know anyone who is more truthful than Zainab. I don't know anyone who is more charitable, has a more charitable disposition than Zainab. I don't know anyone that has a more sense of self-sacrifice than Zainab. I don't know any woman who is more honest than Zainab. However, she said, Ma'ada suratin min hidatin kanat fiha tusra' minha al-fiha. She said, except for the fact that Zainab loses her temper very quickly, but she also regains her cool very quickly. So I'm, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you some things about Zainab. I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. She's honest, she's God-fearing, she's pious, but she has one flaw. She has one flaw, and that's that she gets angry very quickly. She loses her cool very quickly, but she regains her cool very quickly. She said that Zainab asked permission to enter upon the Prophet while he was with me laying on my cloak, laying on my robe. In the same situation that uh, Fatima entered upon us. Showing you if that means that it was kind of like this hat situation happened like back to back because if Aisha was still laying in the same situation in the same position, then that means that there was not a big stretch of time before Fatima between Fatima and Zainab. All right, there was not a long stretch of time. So when Aisha said, "I was laying with the Prophet Sallallahu in the same situation that I was in when Fatima entered upon me," she's basically showing you the closeness of the time between those two conversations. She says, so Zainab asked permission to enter upon the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet Laha, the Prophet granted her permission. This conversation is going to go a little different. <laughs> this conversation is going to go a little different. <laughs> right, so the Prophet ﷺ gave Zainab permission فَقَالَتْ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِنَّ أَزْوَاجِكَ أَرَسَلْنَنِي إِلَيْكَ يَسْأَلْنَكَ الْعَدَلْ فِي بِنَتِي أَبِيكُ حَافَةً So she says the same thing Fatima says. She said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, your wives sent me to you demanding that you exercise fairness between the daughter of Abu Quhafa, meaning the daughter of Abu Bakr, and the rest of your wives. Your wives are demanding fairness. 
you show her, you know, you show her, you know, a little bit more than, you know, than what you give everybody else. قالت عائشة عائشة said ثم وقعت بي فاستطالت علي وأنا أرقب رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وأرقب طرفه حتى يأذن لي فيها Aisha said then she started going in on me then she started going in on me Aisha said then وقعت بي واستطالت علي then she started going in on me. Aisha's this, and Aisha's that, and Aisha's this, and Aisha's that. And Aisha said, the whole time she's talking, I'm looking at the Prophet's eyes, waiting for him to give me permission to respond back. I'm looking at the Prophet as she's talking about me, you know, and I'm looking at him trying to catch his eyes to see if he's going to give me permission to respond back to her. She said, So Aisha said, once I knew that the Prophet would not disapprove of me responding back, oh, I cut into her. I responded back. He said, and I, she said, and we exchanged words until I made her silent. You understand? The Prophet was like, you know, are you going to sit here and talk about this woman while I'm sitting here with my wife? You sitting here going in on her like that. Aisha said that I'm looking at the Prophet's eyes, you know, I'm looking at the Prophet's eyes to see if he's going to have a problem, you know, with me responding. She said, and once I could see that he would not disapprove of me responding back. Oh, I cut into her. <laughs> oh, I cut into her. I cut into her. And she said, I made her silent. We exchanged words until I made her silent. And the Prophet Sallallahu The Prophet Sallallahu started smiling. Right? The Prophet Sallallahu smiled. And he said, this is the daughter of Abu Kuhafa. This is the daughter of Abu Bakr. You know, what, what do you want me to do? This is who she is. What do you want me to do? You want me to change who she is? What do you want me to do? Uh, I need you guys to please pay attention. I see you guys kind of going back and forth. And yes, when we mention the, the 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 companions of the Prophet Sallallahu we should exercise caution. We should be, you know, very cautious about how we speak about them. We should speak about them with the utmost respect. And if someone brings something to our attention, we say shukran, jazakallah khair for the reminder. The reminder benefits the believer, and we keep it pushing. But no need to just continuously go back and forth. Please focus because it's the comment section that gets distracting. It's the comment section that gets distracting. I leave the comment section open because sometimes you guys, when you comment, you kind of help me out sometimes. Sometimes I'm stuck on words and I can't, you know, formulate my words. And then I look over and I see that somebody commented and said something. Alhamdulillah. And you, you kind of, you, you let me, you, you benefited me. And that's one of the reasons why I leave it open. All right. But not to get into a back and forth and, you know, to get into, you know, something that 
conversation that would be distracting, not just for you, but for everybody that is listening. All right. Don't let shaitan separate us. Man. Don't let shaitan come in between us, inshallah. All right. So it wasn't that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was treating Aisha differently. It's just that they were jealous of Aisha. That's, that's the bottom line. They were jealous of her. They could not handle the fact that when they saw him with Aisha, they saw him engaging Aisha, it was different than the way that he engaged with any other woman. And when he smiled, he laughed. He said, you know, what do you want me to do? This is the daughter of Abu Kuh- Ibn Abi Kuhafa. This is the daughter of the son of Abu Kuhafa, meaning this is the son of Abu Bakr. What do you want me to do? You want me to change her? That's who she is. That's who I married. I have to learn how to work my way around that. She even got, you know, sassy with the Prophet Sallallahu on occasions. So it wasn't like she was like that with certain people, but wasn't like that with other people. She was like that with everybody. Spicy. You know what I mean? That's just who she was. That's, that is just who she was. It wasn't like she picked and chose who she was going to be like that with. She even spazzed out on the Prophet Sallallahu at times. There are conversations that, you know, got heated even between the Prophet Sallallahu and Aisha. So he says, you know, he starts smiling when he sees her and Zainab and she, she overtalk, she actually shut Zainab down. And the Prophet Sallallahu starts smiling. He said, in the Ibn Abi Kuhafa, what do you want me to do? This is the daughter of Ibn Abi Kuhafa. Ibn, uh, this is the daughter of Abu Kuhafa. What do you want me to do? So it wasn't that he wasn't exercising fairness. It was just that they were jealous. They were jealous, not in, not envious, not envious, but jealous. They they were kind of salty that you know he engaged her in a way that was a lot different than the way that he engaged others. Even the Prophet ﷺ made a dua. He said, "Allahumma hada qasmi fi ma amlik, fala tulumni fi ma la amlik wa tamlik." All right. Yes, they got into an argument over what she said about Khadija. Absolutely. And there were many other conversations. There were many other conversations that they had where she kind of snapped at him. But even the Prophet Sallallahu said, you know, was very vocal. He said, oh Allah, this is my distribution amongst my wives that I have the ability to be fair in. So do not hold me accountable for what I do not have the ability to be fair in. Don't hold me accountable for that which I have no control over and you have full control over. And what he was referring to was who his heart inclines towards more than the other. That's something I don't have any control over. You control that. He said, oh Allah, this is my distribution amongst my wives in the things that I have control over, meaning my time, my money. These are things that I have control over. He said, so don't hold me accountable for that which I have no control over and you have full control over, meaning my heart. I don't have control over that. The heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. You, sometimes we don't have any control over. So they were, you know, a little salty. They were a little jealous. You know what I mean? Because they saw that, you know, the way that he engaged her. Even, and any woman in polygyny can tell you this. When a woman sees how her husband engages one wife 
or whatever the case may be, there's a natural, there's a natural sense of jealousy and saltiness that comes out because you're looking at how he interacts with this other wife for whatever reason. Maybe he vibes with her differently. Maybe, you know, there's more history there between them. And there's nothing that you can do about it but sit in your discomfort and watch that. And sometimes you want it too. And that's what jealousy is about. Jealousy is wanting what the other person has. That's what jealousy is. Envy is wanting what the other has and don't want the other person to have it. You want it to be taken away from the other person. That's envy. Jealousy is you wanting what the other person has. The Prophet said there, there, are, there are a couple of instances in Islam where Jealousy is permissible. And that is for a person who memorized the Quran. You want what that person has. A person who gives sadaqah. You want to give sadaqah just like that person gives sadaqah. That is the type of jealousy. You want what the other person has. And this is what is a healthy jealousy. All right. And that means that you know you strive to have what the other person has. But Sometimes you have to come to the realization that, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. Everybody has their own hand, their own individual hand dealt to them. And what one person has may not be what you have. You got to be able to see beyond what the other person has and appreciate what you do have. Because that's where you lose. Jealousy, a person who suffers from envy is a person who just simply can't see their own blessings. All right. So lesson number four is that love is the greatest vulnerability. And when an envious person can't hurt you, they hurt the ones that you love. That's why, you know what I mean? That's why love is a vulnerability, because when a person sees what you love or who you love, they now become vulnerable. You now become vulnerable because now a person, if they can't get to you, then they'll get, they'll go after, you know, they'll go after the person that you love. It happens in relationships. When a woman knows that you love your sneakers or whatever, what did Biggie say? You know, I look out the window, I see my polos and timbos. You know what I mean? Like, she gonna go after your stuff. She knows that you care about this stuff. So she gonna cut up your Tims. She gonna cut up your polo. She gonna destroy your stuff because she sees that this, you, you care about those things. Those things are important to you. So, you know, every time the wind blows, I see my polos and timbos. You know what I mean? Like, that's how, that's how it's gonna happen. Because she sees that these things are important to you. You understand? All right. So be mindful, you know what I mean, of your vulnerabilities, man. Be mindful, you know. Be mindful of your vulnerabilities, the things that you love. All right. So Abdullah figured that he would hurt Aisha, seeing as though he could not get to the Prophet. So Aisha narrates this story herself. And uh, as we segue into the story itself, there's a couple of things that we need to understand. Um, and that is that no one can narrate your experience better than you. No one can narrate your experience better than you. So this whole hadith that we are about to cover, that's one, two, three, four, five pages long. <laughs> This hadith is five pages long. Starts here. One, two, three, four, five. 
five pages long, this hadith. I want you to think about that. And this hadith is all narrated by Aisha. She narrated the story herself of what was done to her. And so while she is narrating the story, no one, we understand that nobody can narrate your experience better than you can. Jazakallah khair, um, uh, Sheikh Hanif, for, you know, just capturing those little quotes, making it easier for people to, you know, to, to write it down and to benefit from it. I really appreciate that, Sheikh. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. All right. Um, so this is Aisha. As we, as we comb through this hadith, I want you guys to pay attention that this is Aisha's narrative. She's narrating something, what was a traumatic event that happened to her. All right. No one can narrate what you experienced like the person who experienced it. It becomes your truth. So this hadith is essentially Aisha's truth. Wa alaikum salam, Reese. How you doing, man? Good to hear from you, man. Long time, man. All right. This is this is Aisha. This is essentially Aisha's truth. All right. And essentially, this story, this narrative, it shows Aisha's you know vulnerability. It shows her ability to avoid allowing her emotions to compromise her narrative. Because how many women do you know who could go through such a traumatic event, a traumatic experience, and still manage to stick to the script without, you know, without deviating from the script, you know? So it shows you Aisha's ability to recall without allowing her emotions to compromise her. She was slandered. She was lied on. She was slandered. Her honor was at stake. Her honor was being smeared. Her reputation was being smeared in the whole entire community. And yet she still has the ability to narrate the entire experience without adding anything or taking anything away. Evidenced by the fact that none of the Sahaba contradicted Aisha. All of the other Sahaba who narrated the story, all of their narrations are in sync with what Aisha narrated, meaning there was no contradiction. Nobody contradicted Aisha. And as, as a girl at 14, 15 years old, how many of you women could have a traumatic experience such as this and then be able to recall the entire incident without exaggerating anything, without increasing anything, without subtracting any, without omitting anything because it was painful, with, because it was embarrassing. Some people tell a story and they omit certain things because they don't want to mention that because of how embarrassing it is or because of how painful it might have been. Aisha, she narrated everything. She gave, she gave us everything in this situation, everything. She didn't leave anything out. She didn't omit anything. She didn't omit anything. She didn't subtract anything. She didn't take anything out. She didn't exaggerate anything. Nothing. She told the story exactly the way that it happened. And this brings us to lesson number five, and that is academic integrity. Academic integrity. Academic integrity is the commitment and the demonstration of honest and moral behavior in an academic 
setting. Academic integrity. And this is one of the main components that makes narrators, a narrator's narrative authentic. There are two things that the scholars of Hadith are looking for in a narrative. They're looking for bakt, they're looking for precision, and they're looking for muru'a, and they're looking for integrity. They're looking for bakt and muru'a. If you look at any of the books of Hadith, when we talk about the system of judging narrators, which we know as jarh wa ta'adil, if you're looking for at a system, the scholars, they, you know, put together an entire system by which they could scrutinize every narrator in the chain of narration. And what they are looking for is dhat, a sadrwa kitaba, they're looking for dhat the sub, they're looking for precision in the person's memory, their ability to recall, and they're looking for muru'a, and they're looking for integrity, that the person wasn't known to be a liar, person wasn't known to be a, you know, an exaggerator, person wasn't known to be a person of innovation, person wasn't known to be a drinker, person wasn't known to be immoral. They're looking for integrity, and they're looking for vote. They're looking for precision. And Aisha had both. Aisha had both at 14, 15 years old. And so this is a reminder for us that when we tell stories, when you go to marriage counseling, you and your spouse, and you're trying to get the imam or the student of knowledge, or you're trying to get you know, the, the, the counselor to hear you out, be mindful of the story of Aisha. That although you had a traumatic experience with this individual or that individual, it does not justify you omitting certain things so as to swing, to sway the individual to your side of the story, nor do you have the right to exaggerate certain things to make the other person look more, more than a monster of what you're trying to paint them to be. You don't have the right to do that. Regardless of how traumatized you have been, be honest and be fair. Be honest and be fair in your narrations. Number five is academic integrity. And that's what we learn from Aisha in this particular story. Aisha did not exaggerate anything. And it's very hard, especially for women, because sometimes your emotions get caught in and get wrapped up in the situation. Your emotions get cracked up in the situation. And sometimes you exaggerate things. You make you you exaggerate certain things. You omit certain things. You know what I mean? And it it, it kind of sullies your whole argument. It sullies your entire argument. Imam al-Bukhari narrated this hadith multiple times in his Sahih. He narrates this particular story of Aisha multiple times throughout his Sahih, in Sahih al-Bukhari. And Imam al-Bukhari, he usually reiterates a hadith multiple times in different chapters for two reasons. One is he wants to show the different chains of narration, which adds to the authenticity of the hadith. So here in this chapter, he'll narrate it on one scholar. In this chapter, he'll narrate it again, but on a different scholar. In this chapter, he'll narrate it again on it. So he wants to show you how many different chains of narration this particular hadith has. And it adds to the authenticity. It adds to you know, the certainty that this incident actually happened. 
And that's the benefit of scholars like Imam Bukhari traveling for knowledge, all right? If you stay in one place and you only take from one particular scholar in one place, there's a whole ocean of knowledge that you are missing out on. And so for people to say, oh, they only take from these scholars or this scholar, or they only attend this particular message or that particular message, you got you to gotta realize how much you are depriving yourself. How much knowledge you are really depriving yourself of because you only take from two or three scholars. You only frequent two or three messages. And that's where you get all of your knowledge from. And what we do to assuage our own conscience is that we reject anything else. We'll say anything beyond these three or four or five scholars, anything beyond that is, uh, is questionable. And we do that to make ourselves feel good, to make ourselves feel good about you know, the limitations that we put on ourselves. Or I only go to this mission or that mission. I only take from this person, take from that person. And then that means that everybody beyond those people or those particular places of massage or those, you know, those massage you know what I mean? Like it's questionable. <laughs> you understand? The scholars say that you do not, you will never be able to see the mistake of your scholars until you sit with somebody other than him. If you're constantly taking from one person all the time, you'll never be able to see the mistakes of your scholar because you only take from one person. As the scholars, they say, um, that every person is amazed by his father. <laughs> Everyone is amazed by his own father. So when you have eyes and you see your father as this great figure, you don't see anybody else. So you are you got to think about how much knowledge you are depriving yourself of when you say, well, I don't take from him, I don't take from him, and I don't take from him. So you only take from two or three people? That's, that's where you get all of your Islamic knowledge from? How idiotic. <laughs> how idiotic that you only take uh, this, this of ocean of knowledge, you know what I mean, about Islam, and you only take your information from two or three people? MashaAllah. So Imam Bukhari, he usually reiterates the hadith multiple times in different chapters because one, he wants to show you the different chains of narration, which gives the hadith strength. And it also shows Imam Bukhari's vast knowledge that he sat with multiple scholars and he got narrations from different people. And secondly, when he reiterates the hadith, he always pulls out an additional benefit from the hadith. So he will mention it in different chapters because each chapter he mentions the hadith in, he's pulling out a different benefit in that chapter from the same hadith. So for example, Imam Bukhari, he mentions this story of Aisha. And number one, he mentioned it in the chapter of Shahadat, in the chapter of Witnesses. He also mentions it in the chapter of Maghazi. He mentioned it in the chapter of Battles. He mentions it in the chapter of Jihad, in the chapter of War. He mentions it in the chapter of Tafsir, in the uh, exegesis of, of, uh, of Quran. Um, he mentions it in the chapter of Iman, of Faith. He mentions it again in the chapter of oaths, another. He mentions it again in the chapter of Tawheed. What about what in the story of Aisha 
does Imam Bukhari pull out that is related to Tawheed? As we'll get into all of that. He mentions it also in the chapter of I'tisam. Okay? All right, so now let's crack open the hadith and let's go. So now we got the backstory. So the, the Prophet ﷺ goes to war with Bani Mustalik. He conquers Bani Mustalik. He marries uh, the daughter of the chief of Bani Mustalik, uh, Juwariya bintu Harith. He heads back to Medina. Some of the Sahaba get into a skirmish. Abdullah ibn Abi Ubay ibn Salul seizes the opportunity to try to cause fitna between the Sahaba. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals Surah to Munafikun. Surah number 63 in the Quran. So a whole surah was revealed during that journey. All right, so a lot of stuff happened along this journey, right? A lot of stuff happened on this journey. He, married, he conquers Beni Mustalik. He marries Juwadiya. A whole entire you know, incident happened with the Sahaba. The Prophet had to intervene and put everybody back in their place. A whole entire surah was revealed about the Munafikun exposing them. And now you know, they're on their journey back to Medina. This all happens on their journey back to Medina. All right? Aisha, anha, she narrates the hadith herself. Aisha, she says, um, she narrates uh, her um, nephew, Urwa ibn Zubair, who was the son of Zubair, who was her, her brother-in-law, uh, Urwa narrates the hadith on the authority of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala Zawjin Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Aisha she says Kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Ida arada an yakhruj Ida arada an yakhruj Aqra'a Bayna azwajihi That Aisha she starts off The, sto the story saying Yes, Surah Al-Munafikun is Surah number 63 In the Quran 62 or 63, I'm not really sure Aisha she said that when the Prophet sallallahu wanted to leave, wanted to leave out, meaning if he was leaving on a war expedition, all right, if he was leaving out to go on a war expedition, he would draw lots between his wives to decide who he was going to take. So when the Prophet sallallahu wa sallam, Aisha is taking us backwards to go forward. So she's taking us back before he set out to go fight Beni Mustalik, how she even ended up going on this trip. So Aisha's going backwards to go forward, all right? She's taking us back. As I said before, life is paradoxical in that you can only live it forward, but you can only understand it going backwards. So Aisha says that when the Prophet ﷺ decided to go out on a journey to travel, whether for war or for anything else, that he would do what is called al-qur'ah. Al-qur'ah. Qur'ah means to draw lots. And they would use arrows. So they would put a whole bunch of arrows inside, uh, arrows inside the quiver. And the arrow heads would have different colors. So Aisha would say, my color is yellow. My color is orange. This one said, my color is this. My color is that. And then he would put the arrows into the quiver and then he would draw, close his eyes and he would draw one arrow from the quiver and whichever color came up, that would be that wife that would go with him. All right. So Aisha said that كَانَ نَبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ إِذَا أَرَادَ أَنْ يَخْرُجْ أَقْرَأَ بَيْنَ أَزْوَاجِهِ That when the Prophet ﷺ decided that he wanted to travel, 
he would draw lots between his wives. And whoever, who, who, whoever's uh, arrow was pulled from the quiver, then she would be the wife to travel with him. All right. That brings us to lesson uh, number lesson number five. This is lesson number five, right? Lesson number one. Lesson one was learn uh, was learning to align your personal preferences with the agenda of Islam. Lesson number two was calling out bigotry no matter where it is. Lesson number three is to be mindful of the way that you represent Islam. Lesson number four is that love is the greatest vulnerability. And lesson number five is academic integrity. So we are actually on lesson number six. All right. Lesson six. And that was the fairness that the Prophet exercised between his wives. And this is the single most important requisite for a man being in polygyny. As Allah says in the Quran in Surah number four, ayat three, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, For in khiftum, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Marry from the women those who meet your preferences. So if you look at the beginning of the ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is confirming that for men, you are entitled to your preferences. Although the problem with our preferences is that we make our preferences priorities. Your preference might be a woman that does not have children, but that should not be a priority because if a woman does have a child, that does not mean that she cannot be a good woman. That does not mean that she cannot be the woman of your dreams. Your preferences should not be your priorities. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Marry from the women, those who meet your preferences. You are entitled to your preferences as a man, but your preferences should not be your priorities. Your preferences are not your priorities. Your preferences, your personal preferences, things that you would like to have in a woman. But if she doesn't have it, then it's not necessarily a deal breaker for you. Your priorities are the deal breakers. These are things that you absolutely require in a relationship, <laughs> that there will be no relationship without it. That is a priority. And your preferences are not your priorities. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, nisa. Marry from amongst the women those that meet your preferences. Mefna wa thulatha wa ruba. Two, three, or four. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala start at two? Because monogamy was not the norm in pre-Islamic Arab society. Monogamy was not the norm. The vast majority of men during that time had multiple wives. In my book, The Revolution of Love, I cite at least four to five instances where Sahaba came to take their shahada to become Muslim, and they had four wives, they had six wives, one of the Sahaba had 10 wives. What would be a priority? A priority would be something that you cannot live without, that you cannot be in a relationship with a woman without. Respect is a priority. We cannot have a relationship if you don't respect me. That's a priority. 
The priority is salat. Priority is that you pray. We cannot be in a marriage. We cannot be in a relationship if you do not establish five salat a day. That's a priority. You understand? There will be, I, I wouldn't give a damn if we got married three days ago. You show me that you do not pray five times a day. Our relationship is over. It is over. That is a, that is a non-negotiable. That is what a priority is. It is a non-negotiable. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. I'm not being patient with nothing. Ain't no be patient with me, brother. I'm trying to work through it, man. Listen, there's tons of brothers out there that's going to be patient with you. As for myself, I'm sorry. I am past that point in my life. You told me you prayed five times a day. I asked you when we first sat down, do you establish the Salat five times a day? You told me yes. <laughs> Two weeks after we get married, you don't get up for fudger, you late for Dhuhr, you don't pray Asr. Like, come on, man. Like, nah, that ain't gonna work. So you just gonna divorce me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel no way about it whatsoever. No way. Absolutely. I feel no way whatsoever because I told you that that was a priority. It's not a preference, it's a priority. You have to pray five times a day, that's non-negotiable. You understand? And there's tons of brothers out there that might be okay with you not praying five times a day. I'm sorry, I'm not one of those people. I am not one of those people. That's a priority for me. You understand? So those are examples of priorities. Priorities are non-negotiables, things that you cannot be in a relationship with a person without. You understand? And the person doesn't have the right to lie to you and deceive you. And then once they get in there, they're hoping that, you know, the sex is good or the relationship is good, that it'll, it'll change your mind about it. I'm sorry. I haven't seen sex save anybody's marriage. I haven't seen sex save anybody's marriage. That's a myth. That's a myth. Sex does not save marriages. Hell, love don't even save marriages. Love doesn't even save marriages sometimes. As Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, uh, uh, are houses built on only love? <laughs> Love sometimes is not even a factor that saves marriages. Sometimes people stay together because of kids. Sometimes people stay together because of fear. Sometimes people stay together because of shame. Sometimes people stay, stay together for tons of reasons outside of love and sex. These two things, you are still living in a fantasy if you believe that these two things are going to save your marriage. I'm sorry. I, I have not seen sex ever save anybody's marriage ever in my life. Sometimes love even isn't enough. Absolutely. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that marry the women that meet your preferences, two, three, or four. And Allah started at two because the scholars of tafsir, they say that polygyny was the norm. That's why Allah started at two. Starting at one would have been asinine because monogamy was not the standard. Polygyny was. So Allah starts with what was normal, the cultural norm in pre-Islamic Arab society. 
marry the women of your preference, two, three, or four. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا فَوَاحِدَةً أَوْ مَا مَلَكَتْ يَمِينُوا And if you fear that you cannot be fair or to be just, if you cannot be fair, you cannot be just between the women, then stick to one. So lesson number six is the fairness of the Prophet ﷺ between his wives in that he would draw lots between his wives to decide who would travel with him. We already dealt with the Prophet ﷺ being married to Khadija for 25 years. Anybody that was in the last class can explain that to you. I'm, I'm not going back on that. All right, that's that's a that's a flimsy argument. That's an argument for Muslim women feminists that is as flimsy as the house of a spider. As Allah says in the Quran, oh hanuman baytul ankabut. It is as flimsy as the house of a spider. I, I'm not going back to that one. But fairness uh, is the single most important requisite for a man being in polygamy by being being fair or equitable equitable. Uh, it's probably the more the better choice of words, and that is equitable, meaning making sure everybody has what they need, rather than everybody having the same exact thing. All right, and one having the ability to be fair and equitable in things that he has the ability to be fair and equitable in, and that is in the time that he spends with his wives and the money that he spends on them. All right, some people, some women misinterpret the verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah number four, ayat 129. Let me show you this misconception that some Muslim women, feminists, and others try to mix up. They said that a man can never be fair amongst his wives. Allah says in surah number four, ayat 129, that you will never be able to be fair between your wives, even if it is your ardent desire. So how do we combine? How do we marry these two ayats? Allah says in one ayat that marry the women of your preference, two, three, or four, and if you can't be fair, then stick to one. And then in another ayat, story number four, ayat 129, Allah says you will never be able to be fair between your wives. How do we marry these two? What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about in this particular ayah, surah number four, ayah 129, is the elements that a man will elements that a man will never have control over, and that is his heart. When Allah says you will never be able to be fair between your wives, even if it is your ardent desire, he's referring to the heart. Which is why the next part of that ayah he says, and do not incline all the way towards one, one wife and leaving the other wife hanging as if in the balance. She's not married because you don't treat her like a wife and she's not, she's not divorced because you don't divorce her. You understand? The second part of the ayat tells us what the first part of the ayat is referring to. Right, like children. We love all of our children, but we cannot love them equally the same. Emotions, you cannot divvy your emotions up equally. We don't even have control over our emotions, let alone the discipline to distribute our emotional, you know, our emotional connection to people on an equal level. It's inhumanly impossible. Humanly impossible. 
for us to love each and every individual the same exact way? No way. It's no way. No way. It's not even possible. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to in this ayah when he says you will never be able to be fair between them. He's talking about the inclination of the heart. So the Prophet ﷺ would draw lots between his wives to decide who would go with him. And this is one of the fairest ways for a man in polygyny to decide who's going to go with him. If a man has multiple wives, and only a man in polygyny understands this dilemma, you have multiple wives. And let's just say, you know, you're taking a trip somewhere. All right? I'm a speaker, so sometimes I get invited places. Right? This is the dilemma. I'm going to let you in on a little bit of my life. Right. Sometimes I get invited to I get invited to a place. Right. And it might be a place within America, outside of America. I might get invited to Canada. I might get invited to the UK. I might get invited to Australia. I might get in and and I'm going to speak at these places. All right. Much like the Prophet is my norm to take one of my families with me. I don't like traveling by myself. All right. I didn't get married so I could move as an individual. I got married so I can move as a team. So if I get invited to go to a particular place and both of my wives want to go, but I don't have enough for both of them to go, only one of them can go, how do I decide who goes? The fairest way to do that would be to draw lots. Everybody put their name in the hat. We shake it around, close my eyes, I dig in and I pull out the name. <laughs> Whoever's name comes out, <laughs> That's who goes. That's the fairest way to do that. I, that's not the way that I do it. I mean, like, <laughs> that wouldn't work in my household because there would be some really salty people in my home, so I can't do that. So what we do is we just kind of take turns. Okay, you can go this time, I'll go the next time. And sometimes, you know, I get invited to events or get invited to places that might be corny for one wife and then the next time it might be like oh shoot she getting to go this it's just like all right well you gotta wait till the next time it, just, it happens like that you know what i mean but drawing lots is the fairest way you know to decide because there's this it can't be compromised you understand it can't be compromised so the prophet is showing us as men when you and you have multiple wives, this is the way that you exercise fairness. SubhanAllah. This is the way that you exercise fairness. All right? Even though it was not obligatory on the Prophet to be fair between his wives. Did you guys know that? It was not mandatory for the Prophet to distribute his nights equally between his wives. That was not mandatory. That was an exception. Based upon the ayah in the surah number 33, ayah 51. Look at the ayah. Allah says, Turji man minhunna wa ilayka man You can go to, basically Allah's given him permission to go to whoever's house he wanted to go to and to abandon or leave any woman he wanted to. It was totally up to him how he decided to do that. But distributing his nights equally between his wives was not an obligation on the Prophet ﷺ. So the fact that the Prophet ﷺ exercised fairness in this regard is to teach the men of this ummah how this is done, even though it was not an obligation on him. So on some trips, he would take one wife, and on some trips, he would take multiple wives. Surah number 33, ayah 51. Surah Al-Ahzab, 
51. Surah 33, 51. All right, it was not, distributing his nights equally amongst his wives was not an obligation. That was an exception. Just like marrying more than four wives was an exception to the Prophet there were certain things that were exceptions. The Prophet ﷺ was exempt from certain obligations that the normal men of this ummah had to abide by. All right? They do have to be distributed. In, don't, don't misunderstand me. Follow me. Listen to understand. For a man in our community that has multiple wives, he has to distribute his nights equally. As for the Prophet it was not an obligation on him to do it, although he did it anyway, because he was to set the standard for us. You guys follow me? It is an obligation. Don't run away and say, oh, Brother Shadid said it's not, it's not obligatory for men to be just between their wives. Don't, don't run off and say that. That's not what I'm saying. Do you, do you guys understand here? <laughs> I'm not saying that a man does not have to exercise fairness in his nights. What I'm saying is that the Prophet ﷺ, it was not an obligation on him to do that, although he did it anyway. And on some trips, the Prophet ﷺ would take more than one wife. So that means that he would he would draw lots multiple times. So, okay, I draw lots and then Aisha's name comes up and then we're going to draw again because I'm going to take multiple wives. Some wives might have been like, you know, because you got to think about his wives. Some of them had children. Almost all of them had children. All right, that they had to look after. So some of them probably like, no, nah, I don't want to go. Somebody, you know, somebody else can go. On this particular trip, Aisha went. Also, Um Salama went. Um Salama was on this trip as well. All right. My next question, and we'll end here, all right, so that we understand, because Aisha said that when the Prophet ﷺ wanted to leave out, uh, he would draw lots between his wives, and whoever, you know, arrow came up in the quiver, then she would leave out with the Prophet ﷺ. So she said, So Aisha said, so... Uh, the Prophet Sallallahu drew lots between us going out to a particular battle. She didn't mention the battle because it wasn't for the women to get into the details of war and things like that. It's just like one of the battles we fought. You know what I mean? She's not getting into all of the details because that wasn't a woman's, that wasn't her, you know, that wasn't her forte. Women didn't get into all of the details. These are men fighting. This is one of the battles that we went on, one of the war expeditions that we went on. I can't remember the name of it, but we went out. All right. And she said, so the Prophet ﷺ drew lots and my arrow came up. And so I left out with him. I left out with him. So this shows us the fairness of the Prophet ﷺ, which is lesson number six. That even though the Prophet ﷺ did not, it wasn't an obligation to, um, you know, to, to, to exercise fairness in that regard, to spend nights fairly between his wives. He still did it anyway, right? He still did it anyway because he was the standard. 
and who was setting the standard for the men in our ummah. So then now the question is, why is it that when men have multiple wives in today's time, there's, you know, there's a lot of oppression that goes on. So you have some men that will take one wife, you know, just willy-nilly take this wife and just go. And then in some instances, when he comes back from the trip, he doesn't feel like he is obligated to give the wife that, you know, he left, not obligated to give her her nights back. You have some men who go on Hajj, and you're on Hajj for three weeks. Sometimes a month you're gone, and you take one wife with you. First of all, how did you decide that you were going to take that wife and not the other one? Wallahu a'lam. But then you come back after a month of being gone, and you don't, you don't give that wife that was here any of the time. Under the guise that, oh, this was a religious trip. It doesn't matter whether it was a religious trip or not. You were gone for a month with one wife. You were gone for an entire month. And then the other wife is sitting there well, like, well, it was a religious trip. Like, you're going to sit there and co-sign that? You're not going to tell your husband, hey, you've been with me for a whole month. You know what I'm saying? Like, have some mercy on her, man. You know, at least give her two weeks. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you're going to sit there and condone that? Because you have some women who are in these situations and they'll say nothing. They have no mercy, no compassion, no understanding. You understand? You have some women that will sit there and condone that and feel no way. <laughs> Just as long as you got yours, that's all you're concerned with. That's not Islam. That's not Islam, man. Are you serious? Where's your heart? Where's your compassion? You've been with your husband for a whole month in a whole entire another country, going to the Kaaba, praying, making dua for each other getting up at night, going to the Kaaba, praying, and then you come back to America and you never say to your husband, hey, you've been with me for three weeks. You've been with me for a month, man. You know, go, you know, go spend time with your other wife. You know what I mean? Like, you don't say that. You don't feel anything. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. But Aisha said that, you know, my... You know, my arrow came up and I went out with him on this particular journey. So Aisha's taking us back to go forward. She's telling us how she ended up going on this trip to begin with. Because her arrow came up in the quiver when he was drawing lots. Not only did Aisha go out, but also Um Salama went with him on this trip as well. My question, and I'll leave you with this, is why would the Prophet take his wives with him on a journey, knowing that they were going to war, knowing that there was a possibility that maybe the Muslims could lose, um, they could be taken captive. Wouldn't it be like risky taking your wife on a journey like this, taking a young wife on top of that, 14, 15 years old? Why would the Sahaba, and it wasn't just the Prophet Wasallam, but Abu Bakr took his wife, Umar took his wife. There were many of the Sahaba that would take their wives with them on these journeys, why was this a common practice with the Sahaba that they would take their wives along with them during these journeys? Why? Because yes, number one, for comfort, absolutely. There's gonna come nighttime where we camping out somewhere and you know it's time to go to sleep. You know, they got a tent over here 
you want to sleep with your wife in the tent and sleep around a bunch of men. You know what I mean? Like, who does that? They bring their wives with them for comfort, for companionship. They bring their wives with them to, you know, to uh, record the narrative. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> to record the narrative. You know, the wives are watching and the wives are going to go back to Medina and tell, you know, their version of the story. And that becomes a hadith. That becomes an authentic narration that contributes to the narrative. Yes. Also to aid and to help those who are wounded. So as a man traveling, you have to think, you know, why it's important for you to take your wife with you when you travel. I'll leave you with this. There was a piece of advice that was given to me by Imam Abu Muslim before I went to University of Medina. And I said to him, if there was one piece of advice that you could give me as I'm leaving, going to be a student of knowledge, if there was a piece of advice that you could give me, what would it be? And Abu Muslim looked at me and he said, never leave your wife. Take your wife everywhere you go. I never forget those words like it was yesterday. Never leave your wife. He says, so many brothers go over there and they leave their wives and their marriages end up crumbling or they end up not completing their studies. Take your wife everywhere you go. And I have followed that advice all the way up into this very moment. I have never been, very few times have I been, you know, to a, a travel to a masjid to give dawah, travel to give a lecture, and I did not have one of my families with me. Ever. I have never traveled without my family, ever. Whether we're on a plane, whether we're driving by car, it doesn't matter. And I can tell you that there is nothing that is more comforting to a man, you know, as they say, the best thing in war is a familiar face. If you you out in the world and you traveling, the, the best thing that you know, the best camaraderie, I mean the, the best commodity that you can have is a familiar face, somebody that you can joke with, someone you can bug out with, someone you can laugh with, someone that you know what I mean, like why wouldn't you want to what man wants to travel through the airport and going through everything they're going through by themselves? Who wanna do that? And you have so many men you know, who show up at conferences and lectures and you're like, where your family? Oh, I left my family home. How do you leave your family home? I don't get it. I bring my entire squad, kids and all. I don't give a damn. We move as a family. We move as a family, period. Never leave your family, ever. And yes, it does add security, absolutely. Because nobody knows you like your wife. And sometimes, you know, women have the gift of gab, as I said before, and they're charismatic in situations where a man might not be. You understand? We're in the airport. I'm getting frustrated. My wife might intervene, step in and be like, I got this. And talk to the person in, in a way, in a calm way, and get the situation squashed and satisfied. You know what I mean? And, and alhamdulillah, you needed that in that moment. And so the Prophet ﷺ, when you look at many of his expeditions, he always used to take his wives with him. One or two multiple wives that he would take with him. 
He never, you will never see him traveling by himself. Aisha's with him or Hafsa's with him or Hafsa and Aisha's with him or Sophia and Aisha's with him. And Aisha seemed like she was on a lot of expeditions. <laughs> seems like seems like her uh, her her arrow pops up in every quiver along the side. But we'll continue again on Friday, inshallah ta'ala. You guys have been great. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. Wassalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.